If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Peter, chapter 2. And this morning we will finish up 2 Peter, chapter 2, and the last word Peter has on these false teachers, at least in the second chapter. I'm going to mention something here that won't come up much in the message, but it certainly could easily occur to you, I think inevitably if you're thinking about it, it would occur to you, that what Peter says about false teachers and the danger of false teachers raises the question, so is there, you know, is there really danger for the child of God? Uh, Doesn't the Apostle Paul say when he writes to the Philippians that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus? He does. He says that, and he means that, and ultimately, uh, uh, I have a system of theology that puts the weight there, right? The perseverance of the saints, And yet, if you were listening to what Pastor Don read from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, you know, the promise is given to the one who remains. The one who remains. If you remain, these wonderful promises are yours. Well, you find exactly the same thing in Peter. 1 Peter 1.5, Peter speaks about being kept by the power of God through faith to a salvation ready to be revealed. So you're kept by the power of God through faith. And this, this morning, though, we'll read of people who came to a knowledge of the truth, got re-entangled with the world, so that their last state was worse than their original unbelieving state. So it's kind of hard to land them in heaven, uh, if that's the case. Um, And so it's the tension between those two things uh, that that comes up, and we're not going to be able to unpack all of this here, but just in a Summary form, the idea would be those who are genuinely born again of the Spirit will inevitably conquer the world and persevere to the end. But you only really know that you are that when you've done that. And so in the meantime, these words of warning are meant to land on you. In other words, you and I aren't supposed to read Second Peter about being re-entangled in the world and say, well, good thing I've already asked Jesus into my heart, so no danger here. No, that's not how you're to read that. No, no, no. You're supposed to read it, I had better be very careful because there are false teachers fishing for my soul all the time, and they are successful in gathering many souls to themselves. Let's stand together. Um, 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22. 
Speaking again of these false teachers. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never have to known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the psalmist in Psalm 148 dwells there. Hallowed be your name. Praise the Lord from heaven. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Lord, we do praise you for your creative power. We praise you for creating us in your image so that we can consciously and from the heart praise you, thank you, rest in you, Lord, you tell us that the whole earth, the universe, is one grand show-and-tell project of your praise. Everything from the skies above, the stars and distant galaxies, to the weather patterns that exist all around us, to the grass into the flowers that spread themselves over mountains. All these things remind us of the praise of you. And so, Lord, as we find ourselves in this 
sometimes very disappointing world, may we not be overly discouraged and may we not feel hopeless in the midst of our present circumstances. For we are assured that in the end, your praise will be found lasting forever. And particularly, your praise is to be on the lips of those who have been brought near to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we gather together as those who make a claim to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you, we thank you, we look to you, and we thank you for the nearness that you've provided us in your Son. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You see Shirley and I regularly, years ago, we, um, she got out of school before I did, so I was still a student at Moody Bible Institute, but we would go to the uh, evening service at Moody Church, where uh, Dr. Warren Wearsby was the pastor, and then uh, after that service, especially in the wintertime, then we would wind our way uh, back south a bit through uh, one of Chicago's most upscale neighborhoods, which sits just south of a place called Lincoln Park. And then when you reached Division Street, you went from that wealthy neighborhood into what is sort of the nightlife, um, nightclub district in Chicago. One of several, but the central one, uh, built along a place called Rush Street, just off the Miracle Mile, and we would wind our way through there, often stop and have uh, something to eat at a Wendy's that was in the midst of that. And then if it was cold enough, we'd make our way over to the Water Tower Place, which was a big downtown mall, and most of it was closed on a Sunday night, but you could get inside. It was seven stories, and you could wander around and take escalators and elevators and that kind of thing, and it was a a warm place to stroll around through a good part of the evening. Well, we had done that, and Shirley had gone home, and I'd gone back to my uh, dorm, and so it was later on a Sunday night. And I remember on one particular Sunday night turning on the radio, and there was this interview with uh, Mr. Billy Joel, He had just recently, in the late 70s, become really, really big time. He still uh, fills Madison Square Garden once a month. Sold out, promised, I don't know how many years ago, to keep doing that as long as they would sell out. And they've sold out ever since. He's like 74 years old now, or something like that. Um, But they were asking him, in that interview about a particular song that he wrote. was never a hit song, but it was the song that he ended his concerts with. Particularly dark and sort of perverse song about 
drugs and sex and suicide. It was called Captain Jack. And in the middle of that song, he had this simple little line about the equivalent of the Rush Street District in, uh, in New York City, much more famous, uh, Greenwich Village. And he said, he wrote in that song, So you go to the village in your tie-dye jeans, and you stare at the junkies and the closet queens. It's like some pornographic magazine, and you smile. So they asked him, why, why would you write a song about that? And given the night and I heard it, I've never forgotten it. He said, oh, they said, that's what I referred to as a look out your window song. I was just describing what you see when you go there. That's exactly what you see. Now, not so much on a Sunday night, but where we had just walked, especially if you go there on a Wednesday night. I remember a, a friend down there who parked cars on Rush Street on Wednesday nights, a guy from Moody. And he said, uh, one time when I stopped by there on a Wednesday night, and the place is just a buzz, and there's all things just described all around you and worse. He said, it's interesting, the world runs the same way the church does. Friday night and Saturday night are a big deal, and then they come back for the Wednesday evening prayer meeting. <laughs> and so Wednesday's big down here. Big down here. See, we had just walked by there. It's a look out your window song. That's right, who's long Rush Street. This is the way it is. Relatively dark ominous sort of place. His latest interview, Al Mohler, um, does these things called uh, thinking in public. He's got me hooked on them. Uh, his latest interview is with a political science teacher, a professor of jurisprudence. He taught at Amherst College for 50 years. A very, very close personal friend of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And uh, Mueller was interviewing him about uh, his attempt to, uh, through his teaching and through now a, a think tank that he runs, influence the court system in the United States in a conservative direction. But at the end of the interview, he said, you know, Dr. Mueller, he said, I live in Washington, D.C. now. He's 82 years old. Hadley Akers is 82 years old. He said, I live in Washington, D.C. now. And many mornings in the week, when I wake up and watch the news, or go out, he said, I feel like I've awakened into some sort of dystopian novel. Where not only is everything falling apart, but we're totally committed to doing the things that caused it to fall apart, almost even more so. Well, that's pretty bleak. Look at that, think, oh man. 
How terrible where we live. Well, I mention all of that because Peter reminds us, oh, it was at least that bleak, that dark in the first century. When Peter writes what he writes, especially right at the close of this section that we're on this morning, the last two verses, speaking of these false teachers and the people they lead astray, it would have been better for them had they never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What in the world is an author of the Bible doing? Writing about vomit and mire. That's what he's doing. Vomit and mire. That's dark. It is dark. The danger of false teaching is dark. Very dark. And as I say, that darkness is spreading all around us in our own generation. The thesis that he has is really a simple one. I've stated it this way, even though there's quite a bit of text. It really just comes down to this. There is much at stake in believing the wrong things. There is much at stake in believing the wrong things. He opens, our first point, he opens with the deceptive emptiness of false teaching. So, number one, consider the deceptive emptiness of false teaching. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for... Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 18 and then come back and pick up verse 17 because that's sort of the the order of their experience. So these false teachers come, verse 18, speaking loud boasts of folly. The essence of false teaching is always this. New discovery, new advance forward. Yes, the old ways got a little stodgy and traditional, but now there's some new insights. I'm going to share these new insights with you. It's very exciting. It's extremely cutting edge. Only cutting edge, as he says, tends to be morally and spiritually perverting. The essence of their bold knowledge sometimes comes to this. Actually, perversion is progressive. 
Perversion is advance. Perversion is the new loving way. Perversion is the way forward. And they say it loudly and boldly and promise a new freedom, glorious things ahead. And now, back to where he started. And if you embrace it, what do you find? Well, you find waterless springs and mist driven by the storm. They're like, well, what's a waterless spring? Yeah, that's exactly the point. Right? A waterless spring is no spring at all. (laughs) If there's no water coming out, it's not really a spring. But it still announces itself as a spring. Spring of truth, spring, spring of insight, spring of fresh direction. But these false teachers, it's waterless springs. It's myths, nothing you can get your hands on. But lots of noise, strong wind, storm. Made me think of uh, J. Gresham Machen's book of exactly 100 years ago that I mentioned many times called Christianity and Liberalism, where he marches a comparison in uh, 1923 between what mainline denominations were starting to believe, especially the Presbyterian Church USA that he was a part of, and what they used to believe. And so the, the book just outlined itself as doctrine, God and man, the Bible, Christ, salvation, the church. And Machen's point when he gets to the end of the book is that the new teaching on, about doctrine isn't what anybody ever believed before. The new teaching on God and man is not what anybody ever believed before. The new teaching on the Bible is not what ever, anybody ever believed before. The new teaching on Christ is not what anybody ever believed before. The new teaching on salvation, the same. The church, the same. And so his conclusion at the end is, look, this new liberal Christianity is actually not Christianity at all. It has nothing to do with Christianity. You can't, with a straight face, really call it Christianity. And that's always the way. That's how it works with false teaching. Is that it's a new version of of Christianity that's not really Christianity at all. And the consequences of it are devastating. Uh, we'll touch on one example a little bit more substantially. It's in the next line, second half of verse 18. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In other words, they're picking off the edges of the church where people have sort of a, they're just close to just going along with the world on everything already. And then this teaching comes along and gives them an excuse and a path to do just that, and they take it, pick them off. They almost escaped, but not quite, because the false teachers came and gathered them up. Verse 19, they promised them freedom, 
But they themselves are the slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They promise them freedom. So in our day, look, there's new technologies. This is a new era. We're a scientific generation. As I've heard said quite a few times uh, by major talk show hosts and so forth, it seems a little silly now, right, to govern your life by words that were originally put out there 2,000 years ago. I, come on. This is, this is the 21st century. And so traditional ideas say, especially aimed toward our men, the most successfully The notion that, you know, something like pornography is really damaging. That there's really any danger in lust. Let's just be frank. That's Victorianism. That's prudish. That's, that, that's, that's, just, not, that's just not 21st century thinking. And so real Christians, they lighten up a little bit on stuff like that. You say, yes, but Jesus said, Matthew 5, 28 and 29, that lust is extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Extremely puts souls at risk. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, well, that's what the the pornography industry is. It's the lustful intent industry. Whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Why? Here's the key. Because it's better that you lose one of your members, one of your eyes, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And so there it is. But it's a multi-billion dollar industry and our young men are almost all struggling with it. Because they carry it around with them all the time. Its first cousin is the sex trafficking industry. And all of this, I say, is part of even what goes by progressive Christianity. Oh, don't get overblown about these sorts of things. But what's the result of it? And many of you know by personal experience, what? You get addicted to pornography. It's supposed to be this glorious freedom. But instead, it's addiction, shame, guilt, despair. Promises freedom, delivers addiction, shame, guilt, despair.
That's how it always works. That's how all false teaching works. And he summarizes it in this little editorial comment. And this goes back to everybody in a whole range of issues now. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So you can add alcohol, food, spending, gambling, politics, various entertainments. I want you to... This false teaching here, the only thing we know about it for sure, particularly, is they downplay judgment. They downplay fault on end-time judgment. But in one sense, we know everything about it in particular. Because the essence of it is this. It blurs the distinction between the church and the world and entangles people in the world's way of thinking about everything and anything. That's what it does. That's its design. That's its result. That is its aim. But it comes around and ultimately gets its power from contradicting just a simple statement like this. Uh, Remember how James put it in James 4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the essence of false teaching is it just comes along and says, No, 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 no. See, here in the 21st century, we've figured out how to be a friend of God and a friend of the world at the same time. It's a new discovery, and and we know how to do it. So just listen to us, and we'll tell you. You can be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Only it's not true. It's not true. There is no such thing. And so we end up with supposedly Marxist Christians and Nazi Christians and all kinds of strange Christians that aren't Christians at all. Secondly, consider the the single alternative to false teaching. It's really a remarkable statement there in verse 20. Uh, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through or by means of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled again in them. Notice the only way to escape the defilements of the world according to Peter. The only way to escape the world, it's that powerful, it's that insidious, it's that overwhelming, is by a genuine knowledge of our Lord and Savior 
Jesus Christ, which you could summarize as by a genuine knowledge of God. The only way to escape this cultural Marxism that is sweeping the planet by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way you will escape it. That anybody will escape it. I love the little summary statement of how all this works in Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6, the author of Hebrews, in the midst of a chapter all built on examples pulled out of the Hebrew Bible. He says, without faith it's impossible to please him, that is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, it's a little misleading, though it's a perfectly fine translation, but in context, they must believe that he exists. Oh, okay, so they have to believe in in the existence of God. Well, yes, but that's not really what he means there. What he means is they have to believe that God exists as he has revealed himself. In his revelation. They have to believe that God exists as, in other words, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have to believe that God exists as the creator of heaven and earth. And all that is in it. They have to believe that he is. And that he rewards those who diligently seek him. It's interesting, that little phrase, who diligently seek him. How do you know whether you're diligently seeking the Lord? I was struck to, I, I thought instantly of the second verse of Psalm 119. So I looked it up in the Septuagint to see if the same little compound verb for seeking diligently Epizeteo would be there in Psalm 119.2. And there it was. And there it was. Now, it's especially helpful to find it in a context like that. Because in Psalm 119.2, there's Hebrew parallelism going on. Right? And so, he's saying the same thing twice. He's saying exactly or almost exactly the same thing twice. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Who seek him with all their heart? Well, that's the same group of people doing the same thing. What does it mean to seek God with all your heart? It means to keep his testimonies. Oh, and by the way, it's the blessed person, it's the happy person who's obedient. And the false teachers always say, well, you know, actually the world kind of has the corner on happiness. I mean, you know, the church is decent at holiness. It stinks at happiness. 
You know, the real happiness is always found right out on the edge. The closer the world you get, the happier you will tend to be. Peter says, no, that's not true. That's not true. The closer the world you get, the more in danger you are of becoming entangled by it and drawn into eternal spiritual ruin. Uh, To diligently seek is to have your life shaped by the word of God, by the knowledge of God. You escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the knowledge of what he stands for, by the knowledge of what he teaches, by the knowledge. Thirdly, consider the hopeless end of false teaching. Consider the hopeless end of false teaching. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back to the holy commandment from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb said has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. So what's he, what's he mean? He would be better off never to have even, never have made even a profession of faith. What does he mean? Well, he's referring, I think, to a principle that he, cert- he learned from Jesus. Right? So Luke 12, 47 and 48 The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a lighter beating. And then here's the principle. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. It's as simple as whatever you know you're responsible for. And these people that get re-entangled in the world, they often knew a fair bit. But they didn't hang on to it. Uh, They got a tangled afresh in the world. And remember, that's the the very essence of this false teaching is that it just has the tendency to entangle you into the world. You go from thinking of certain things as way out there and perverted, to suddenly find yourself living in a society in which, you know, they have 
ceremonies at a Major League Baseball game celebrating all things perverted to start the game. You have to do that. They have to do that a certain month of the year. And they do it, and they place their logo all over it. And, and, and you're watching this as, well, it, I, I guess it can't be that bad. You know, the, all our major corporations and uh, Major League Baseball and the NBA, uh, they, they, they've all embraced this. They have. They're promoting this. They have. And then the message comes, well, it's about time for the Christians to catch up. We better catch up. And Peter says, don't catch up. Don't catch up. To catch up is to re-entangle yourself in the world. You notice how simply he puts it. It's, it's really, really stark. It's really, really stark. Um, what gets traded for what? You end up being asked to trade away holy commandments for vomit and mud. Over here you have the holy commandments. Ten commandments. The rest of scripture. Holy commandments. Uh, uh, looks a little backward to us though. No. Um, you know. And what do, you, what do you get if you trade those? Well, you get dog returns to his vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, turns to wallow in the mire. That's the danger. It was the danger in the first century. And it's the danger in the 21st century. And Peter's word to us is, watch yourself. Watch yourself. Be careful. These false teachers are pressing in around you effectively, and they always have this going for them. In the first century, they had this going for them. The entire Roman Empire backs them up. And in the 20th, first century, they have exactly the same advantage. The entire American empire backs them up, cheers them on, labels them as the genuine article, and labels anybody that doesn't go along as some combination of crazy and evil. But Peter says, don't you go. Don't you go. Because all they have for you is enslavement and vomit and mire. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
we ask that you would enable us to hear your voice in these dark words of Peter's. Lord, this is surely for us a look out our window text where we see all of these things unfolding all around us. As if we have awakened to find ourselves in some kind of a spiritually dystopian novel. But you are here. And your word is true. And the knowledge of you will see us through. And we are, as Peter says, kept kept by the power of God, held fast by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to believe to be revealed in the last time. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.